Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am once again your host, the one and only Kid Kong. Back again, flying solo. Uh, Cal will be joining me again the next time when we discuss the Flintstones, but that's that's a couple of weeks away. Um, this week, I remember saying at the end of last week's episode that was going to be on the movie Lawless. However, I got to thinking about it, and because I literally just covered a movie with Tom Hardy, it would have felt a little weird to jump right into another movie with Tom Hardy. So I've decided I'm going to hold off on Lawless for a little while, and instead I'm going to talk about a movie that I have been a fan of, the franchise in general and everything to do with it, for as long as I can remember. I'm going to be talking about the Muppet movie from 1979. Of course, the Muppet movie, Muppets, Jim Henson, That's that goes without being said. Jim Henson has been involved in a lot of things that have been very near and dear to me my entire life. Ninja Turtles, Fraggle Rock, of course, Sesame Street, the Muppet series. I, I have a lot of love for the work of Jim Henson, and I always have. So we're going to... We're going to talk about the Muppet movie today, and we're going to also going to briefly run down some of the other things that he's done over the years. And this this should be a fun one, folks. The Muppet movie was directed by James Frawley. James Frawley uh, passed away in 2019. Is probably best known for directing television series, including The Monkees, That Girl, Columbo, Magnum P.I., Cagney and Lacey. He directed several of the first season episodes of Smallville and also worked on Grey's Anatomy for several years. The screenplay was written by Jerry Jewell and Jack Burns, both of whom passed away in 2004 and 2020, respectively. Both of these men had worked extensively with Jim, Hens Jim Henson throughout their careers on The Muppets, Sesame Street, and Fraggle Rock. However, Jack Burns also worked on Hee Haw for quite some time. I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now that... There are a um, most of the actors and staff that worked on this film, including Jim Henson, ha have long since passed away, and most of and it's, and it's not like many of them died at young ages or anything like that. Many of them died due to old age. Several of whom made made it to nearly one hundred, and in the case of one of them, made it to hundred years old. It was distributed by Associated Film Distributions and made on a budget of $8 million and pulled in $65.2 million at the box office, making it quite a success at the time. Uh, this film serves as an origin story for the Muppets. Uh, Kermit goes across country to Los Angeles and meets many of the Muppets along the way there while trying to avoid the villainous Doc Hopper, who is a restaurateur, who wants Kermit to be the spokes frog for his frog's legs business. That's, um, that, that, that's like having a chicken be the spokesperson for, for KFC. It's just not a, it's not a good look and it doesn't work too well. The film was met with tremendous critical praise. Uh, it was actually an Oscar nominated film in a couple of regards and I'll get to that. And was also selected for preservation in the library of Congress. This film has both a big and small cast, and I'll explain that. The Muppets themselves, uh, I'm going to break them down as to who portrayed them. Kermit the Frog, Rolf the Dog, Dr. Teeth of the, the band, uh, Waldorf, and the Swedish Chef were all done by Jim Henson. Jim Henson, of course, passed away in 1990, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Use, was dedicated to his memory. 
Uh, Miss Piggy, Fozzie, Sam the Eagle, Animal, and Marvin Suggs were voiced by the great Frank Oz. Frank Oz is still active, uh, and probably outside of this is best known as providing the voice for Yoda in the Star Wars series. Floyd Pepper, Crazy Harry, Robin the Frog, Lou Zealand, and Camilla the Chicken were all vo uh, voiced and puppeted by Jerry Nelson, who passed away in 2012. Scooter, Statler, Janice, Sweetums, and Beaker were all puppeted and voiced by Richard Hunt, who passed away in 1992, although Richard Hunt's son also contributed to help out. And lastly, Gonzo, Zoot, Bunsen, and Dog Lion were done by David Goles. Carol Spine, uh, Spiney also appeared as Big Bird in a kind of a quick thing. The human cast, Doc Hopper, who of course is the big villain, that is that is the man who is trying to get Kermit, was done by Charles Durning. Charles Durning passed away in 2012. Charles Durning had a very long career, including films like I Walk the Line, The Sting, Dog Day Afternoon, Choir Boys, North Dallas 40, Attica, he was in Tootsie, he was in Death of a Salesman, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and State in Maine. In addition to that, the character of Max, who is Doc Hopper's second-in-command and chief lackey, was played by Austin Pendleton. Austin Pendleton had appeared in Short Circuit, True Identity, Mr. Nanny, Amistad. He provided voices in Finding Nemo and Finding Dory, as well as being in The Mimic. This man also has a ton of both on- and off-Broadway directing credits to his name. A Lumberjack, played by H.B. Haggerty, who died in 2004. And I, I'm only mentioning this because he's... H.B. Haggerty, also known as Harbold Haggerty, was a professional wrestler. His real name was Don Stonsick. As a lifelong fan of professional wrestling, I always feel like I have to mention these kinds of people. Uh, he appeared in Paint Your Wagon, Death Sport, and in The Big Brawl, which was Jackie Chan's foray into American Studios film productions in 1980. Bruce Kirby, who passed away in 2021, best known for being in Stand By Me, Plays a gate guard. Uh, the director, James Frowley, cameos as a waiter in the cafe where Fozzie is performing. Melinda Dillon, best known at, from uh, the Broadway film Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, also has an uncredited cameo as a woman with a balloon. Frank Oz appears as a biker who beats up Fozzie. Steve Whitmire, who is Jim Henson's protege and who took over for Kermit after he passed away, also appears at the, at the fair. In the... The big final shot with all the puppets that you see uh, doing the reprise for Rainbow Connection, Tim Burton and John Landis, now John Landis, best known for directing films like American Werewolf in London, were in that as puppeteers. However, they were not credited, and the vast majority of the people who worked with Jim Henson on The Muppet Show reprised their roles and contributed to the film as well. We're not done with the cast, because what is a Muppet movie without cameos? The Muppets pride themselves on being a pop culture thing. They always had to have cameos. I'm going to give the cameos here as who they played and something that they were relatively or well-known for. The Hollywood agent Bernie was played by Dom DeLuise. Dom DeLuise passed away in 2009. Dom is very, very, very well-known for all the collaborations he has done with Mel Brooks, as well as voicing multiple characters in Don Bluth movies. We mentioned Don Bluth quite a bit earlier. <laughs> The cafe owner of El Slizo Cafe, where Fozzie is performing, was played by James Coburn, who passed away in 2002. James Coburn, of course, was one of those Hollywood tough guys that you saw back in the 60s and 70s. He was in 50s, even. He was in Affliction, which actually won him an Academy Award, and in The Magnificent Seven. 
Yeah, Sleazo uh, Patron was played by Madeline Kahn. Madeline Kahn passed away in 1999. She's best known for her appearance in multiple Mel Brooks films, including Blazing Saddles. And actually reprised, not only did she play this character in this film, but she gave herself the same speech impediment and mannerisms as the character she portrayed in Blazing Saddles. A tough guy that was seen in El Slizo was played by Terry Savalas, who passed away in 1994. Terry Savalas, of course, was in Kojak. Uh, he played a Bond villain and probably got his biggest like notice as far as people remembering him in the film The Birdman of Alcatraz. The character of Myth, who had to be summoned by name, was played by Carol Kane. Carol Kane, of course, is a longtime TV actress who is best known as appearing as the character of Latka, played by Andy Kaufman's wife in the TV series Taxi, but she's also appeared as John Munch's ex-wife in multiple episodes of Law & Order. The El Slizo pianist was played by Paul Williams. Paul Williams, of course, was one of the guys who wrote the music for the film, including being the one who wrote Rainbow Connection. Madman Mooney, the used car salesman, was played by the legendary Milton Berle, who passed away in 2002. Milton Berle was Mr. TV. Like, if you saw a television series or movie or whatever the case may be from around the time of the 20s onward, you saw Milton Berle. Compare the fair announcer who announces Miss Piggy as the winner, was played by Elliot Gould. Elliot Gould, of course, got his initial biggest uh, exposure in the movie M.A.S.H., However, younger listeners are going to recognize him most as the, the father of Ross and Monica in TV's Friends. The character of Charles McCarthy, a.k.a. himself, was played by Edgar Bergen, who passed away in 1978. This was his final film role. This was a, a big-name ventriloquist. The Ice Cream Vendor was played by Bob Hope, who passed away in 2003. He was 100 years old when he passed away. Of course, Bob Hope. Stand-up comedian, well-known for the USO shows, as well as the Road 2 film series, which has been lampooned some very, very well and some very, very badly by Seth MacFarlane in his Family Guy TV series. The Balloon Vendor was played by Richard Pryor, who passed away in 2005. Richard Pryor, of course, is one of the greatest stand-up comedians of all time and was also well-known for frequent collaborations with Gene Wilder on film. The insolent waiter that was at the restaurant was played by Steve Martin. Steve Martin, of course, was in The Jerk. He's in The Three Amigos, Father of the Bride series, Cheaper by the Dozen series, and, of course, he had a long stand-up comedy role. That is a man who I will be very sad when he passes away. Speaking of someone who I'll be very, very sad when he passes away, Professor Max Craftsman was played by Mel Brooks. Oh, my goodness, the great Mel Brooks. This man has been a fantastic director. He has appeared on screen in films that are both his and not his. Um, he was in Spaceballs, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein. He appeared in Dracula, Dead and Loving It, where he played a humorous Abraham Van Helsing. He also provided the voice for Mr. Big Weld in Robots. I don't have enough time or energy to really delve into how much I love the man Mel Brooks. He is outstanding. He's 95 years old and still going strong. Uh, Lou Lord, who is the Hollywood like producer guy who... We'll get into that a little bit, uh, just a little bit in a little bit. Was played by Orson Welles, who passed away in 1985. Of course, Orson Welles, uh, War of the Worlds. He was his la he was in the Transformers as Unicron. And Miss Tracy, Lou's secretary, was played by Cloris Leachman, who passed away just last year in 2021. Of course, Cloris Leachman was best known for her run on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. However, she has appeared in a lot of other things. Uh, she played. Lois's mother in Malcolm in the Middle, which is one of the things I best recognize her and remember her from, while also appearing in the remake of The Longest Yard, 
and also providing a voice on Beavis and Butthead to America. Whew. Now, this film was made in between filming the first and second half of the third season of the TV series, TV's The Muppets. Uh, The Muppets were, and in a lot of respects still are, one of the biggest pop culture phenomenons who have ever come out of the United States. Uh, They were hugely popular in the 1970s with all kinds of merchandise, toys, stuffed animals. Like, I don't think people really realize just how big of a deal Muppets really are. Um, The things you see on Sesame Street are technically Muppets. Like, that's all Jim Henson. So, I mean, there's a reason why Kermit has appeared in multiple things that have featured, whether it's Oscar the Grouch or especially Big Bird. Follow that bird being probably the most notable example of that. They began discussing the idea of making a movie as early as midway through season one and began the process of it shortly thereafter. There were some real concerns, however, as to whether or not the Muppets could really translate seamlessly to being on film. I mean... They were mostly done on a small, closed set. So the idea of shooting these things off-site in a much more open and realistic setting provided some initial difficulties. Uh, In order to try and help this move along and to come up with whether or not this would actually work, Frawley Henson and and, uh, Frank Oz filmed some test scenes in 1978 in London in order to see how the Muppets would really look in a a real-world situation. Upon viewing the test footage and seeing that, you know, these they don't look, that this looks like it'll work, they put plans into motion and began working on a script and on logistics throughout season two and during the first half of season three to try and get this off the ground. Principal photography began July of 1978 and lasted until September of 1978. It was filmed throughout Albuquerque, New Mexico, as well as areas of Los Angeles and parts of Northern California. It is important to note that this was the first and only Muppet film to ever be made with an out-of-house director. Most of the people that worked on this film have said that, you know, when you think of the Muppets, you think of harmony. You think of things really working well, flowing well, everybody getting along. That wasn't the case on this film. Um, Frawley was not overtly familiar with the Muppets and it with puppetry in general, and as such, was not happy on set throughout most of the of the running. And when the guy at the very top is not happy, that tends to trickle down. A lot of people described making this movie as kind of a miserable experience. And going forward from there on out, whether it's Muppets in Space, <laughs> Muppet Treasure Island, or any of the remakes, or any of the other things that they have done, either Jim Henson or Frank Oz directed what happened from there on. Some cool stuff that came out of note during production, because there, was, apart from them being miserable, there really weren't any problems on set. I mean, it's a Muppet movie. There's only so much danger you're going to put yourself in. Um, for the opening scene where Kermit is playing his banjo on a log, Jim Henson was squeezed into a specially made metal container that had a hose attached to it so that he could breathe. There was also a rubber sleeve attached to said uh, container so that he could stick his arm up for his puppetry, and he had a monitor in there with him so that he could see his performance and adjust it accordingly. He was then placed under the water, under the log, and under the Kermit the Frog puppet. Whitmire assisted, and this scene alone took five days to film in order to get it right. Uh, I mean, just between having him looking like he's strumming the banjo and performing, it, it was... Not an easy thing to do. Nowadays, they might try and do some of that with 
different kind of puppetry or even god forbid cgi but kermit's legs needed to be able to be seen as well like that was very key because again this is one of the first times that you see this kind of thing done on film uh like there's a moment during the movie where he's riding a bike a kermit puppet was set up and put in position on the bike with his legs and arms attached to the pedals and the handlebars they then attached marionette systems and a very strong strings that would be uh, invisible to the naked eye during filming and attached this to a crane in order to, and kept the crane out of the camera frame in order to make the bike look like Kermit was riding the, the bike. Other shots involving standing Muppets or full body like shots where you've seen that, specially made remote controlled puppets were made on set and the puppeteers were given the remotes and were off camera while they enacted the scenes out and used and said their lines. Um, the moment where you see like Dan Kermit and Fozzie were dancing in the restaurant, that was done by Jim Henson and Frank Oz on a closed set via a blue screen and then composited and put into what you see. Um, all of these like techniques they would use for that and for Kermit riding the bike and everything, they'd be refined and retooled and reused to make things look that much better when you get further Muppet films. Any driving scenes, because there are scenes where Fozzie is driving his Studebaker. If you see Fozzie driving, uh, there's a camera hidden in the grill, the front grill of the truck, or the vehicle, rather, to give it that perspective of like looking like that. And they would have a dwarf sitting in the trunk with a remote control and a monitor so they could see the road for the little driving scenes they'd have to do. That's insane. That is absolutely insane. The uh, big end scene, the big reprise of Rainbow Connection that ends out the film. Over one, 250 different Muppets were used. That is virtually every single Muppet that had been created by that point. 137 puppeteers were used they dug a six foot deep and had a 17 foot wide pit used by the puppeteers to move around and do this. They were able to pull this off in just one day. Jim Henson himself gave the big rah, rah, we can do this speech and got everybody to understand that, you know, it's not just a matter of you're moving your hand to make their mouth move or you're moving a stick with their, with their hand on it to make their hand look like they're waving. These things need to look like they have emotion, like they are real beings. Jim Henson was a master at getting people to feel this kind of thing and did so. Prior to this film being made, no film had ever been done that had a hand puppet act with its entire body on a screen instead of just being seen from the waist up. So in that respect, this movie was groundbreaking in that regard. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Bergen did die prior to the release. Shortly after, I think within a week after filming his final scenes, he passed away. And Henson dedicated the film to his memory as a result of that. Uh, Muppets have always been very medical. Medical, I'm so sorry. Have always been very meta with their references and their humor. They break the fourth wall consistently. They break the fourth wall in the film as well. Like seeing Big Bird on the road who declines getting a lift to Hollywood because he is heading to New York in order to break into a public TV site. That's a Sesame Street reference. Um, there's a point where Doc Teeth is able to save Kermit and Fozzie because Kermit basically tells him where they're going to be if they need to be saved. 
Like, they're very self-referential and deprecating in their humor. That's one of the things I've always loved about them. Again, there was a pretty interesting vehicles used with this. Uh, Jim Henson specifically and specially chose the classic cars that he wanted to use in the film, including the 1951 Studebaker Commander Coupe. The one that was the heavily modified in order for it to look like Fozzie was driving it is now on display at the Studebaker Museum in Indiana. And they also had another one that was painted and made to look exactly the same that was used for distance shots where you would see it driving down the road. Paul Williams worked on the score for the film in near total freedom as Jim Henson claimed that he knew he would love it and did not want to see, seem like he was micromanaging the man at all, which is completely unheard of and it's not really the kind of thing you really see anymore. May of 1979, CBS aired The Muppets Go Hollywood, an hour-long special designed in order to promote the film. And in April, The Muppets actually hosted Johnny Carson's show in order to further advertise this. This was also the first film from ITC that would be released on home media. And it had its royal premiere at Leicester Square Theatre in London on May 31st of 1979. Princess Anne of the royal family attended. It had its wider U.S. release June 22nd, 1979. In its first six days in London, it garnered $31,884 US. That may not sound like a whole lot, but back in that time period, you didn't have multi-million dollar openings very often. Sure, they happened, but it was a very, very rare thing, comparatively speaking. This wasn't Star Wars. This wasn't Jaws. This wasn't Indiana Jones. This wasn't any of those big, major things. And, of course, the idea of can the Muppets succeed on the big screen when they've had so much success on the small screen, can that really flow through the way that it did? It would eventually earn over $65 million at the box office, as well as pulling in $32 million in rentals from the box office, which actually made it the highest-grossing Muppet film until 2011, when The Muppets came out with, um, not Jason Sudeikis, Jason Siegel. I'm sorry, I almost said Jason Sudeikis. The success of this film actually led Lou Grade who was the guy who was in charge of the distribution company. I mentioned him earlier, how they, Orson Welles based his character on that. It, it emboldened him to further his own film distribution. This backfired with multiple massive box office failures within just one year, and it ultimately led to the closure of his distribution studio. It was a great critical success. Um, very, very little bad has been said about this film, at the time that it came out, and very little bad has been said since over the years. Uh, what little complaints that I was able to find, some people complained that the musical score didn't feel quite as epic as would be expected, which, to that, I say, this is the Muppets. How epic do you need it to be? Some of this film may not have aged well at times, but that's comedy. That's the one thing that has really fallen to the wayside when people react to comedy nowadays is the idea that comedy is extremely subjective. What one man finds funny, another man may not. What was once commercially acceptable to joke about may not still be commercially acceptable to joke about today. Um, not to get off on any kind of tangents here, but if you look at how people... like, There's multiple articles called uh, Gen Z watches friends and they are appalled by what they see. Well... Yeah, there's homophobic jokes and things like that made in the 90s because at the time, that kind of thing was ripe for comedic material. You can't really do that nowadays because there's so many 
groups out there that advocate for that. And it's, and it's not to say that they should be made fun of because they absolutely should not. But I, I tend to agree with certain comedians who say that either everything should be allowed to be made fun of or none of it should be. The, there is no difference between a good joke and a bad joke. There is only a joke that lands with its particular audience or doesn't land with its particular audience. Somebody somewhere is going to laugh at your material, no matter how bland it may be or how abhorrent it might be. Anthony Jeselnik is one of the current big successes in stand-up comedy. And that guy, there are quite a few people I know that would not like his comedy because it's extremely, extremely black humor. Things that happen with the Muppet, and, that, and that's another thing. Um, some people felt like you really can't take your kids to see the Muppet movie. Like, there's some adult jokes. What was released in London was actually 97 minutes long, while in the States it was only 95 minutes long. They had to remove some uh, references that were deemed not family-friendly. I don't know who needs to hear this. And this might sound a little odd coming from somebody who has loved them since childhood. The Muppets have never been a kid's thing. Like, they have always had adult jokes of, of certain variety, inside jokes, little innuendos, and things like that. It's always, always, always been that way. When you have things come out like Muppet Babies, which is a cartoon that I greatly loved, as well as other little things that get added in here and there, it can kind of imply that, oh no, it's, it's always been kid-friendly, but that's never been the case. When the Muppets TV series was revived in the late 2010s, it was met with some opposition from some groups, and it's like this is exactly what the Muppets was of the '70s. Like that's that that you're not getting something unexpected or brand new in in that sense. Like you you should not be surprised by this kind of a thing. It was in 2009 selected for preservation in the Library of Congress, and in 2020 the song "Rainbow Connection" was also selected for preservation in the Library of Congress. Rainbow Connection is one of my absolute favorite songs. And, and I say that, um, it's probably the only song that I really, outside of certain other songs, like I Wish It Would Rain or a couple others, that's my depression song. That's the one I listen to when I'm feeling sad about something because it, it, it brings me up a little bit, and it always has. So I, I have a very, very fond connection to that song as far as I'm concerned. American Film Institute AFI had nominated it for two different awards, 100 Years, 100 Laughs, and The Greatest Movie Musicals. However, it is number 74 on 100 Years, 100 Songs for Rainbow Connection. At the Oscars, it was nominated for Best Original Song, which it lost to It Goes Like It Goes in the movie Norma Ray, as well as Best Adaptation Score, which was nominated and it lost to All That Jazz. At the Golden Globes, it was also nominated for Best Original Song, but lost to The Rose for the self-titled movie The Rose. It did, however, win a Grammy for Best Album for Children, as well as the Saturn Award for Best Fantasy Film. I have loved the Muppets my entire life. Whether it's Muppet Treasure Island, Muppets in Space, The Muppets, The Great Muppet Caper, Muppets Take Manhattan, <laughs> A Muppet Christmas Carol, Muppets, Muppets Most Wanted. I, I own the original TV series in its entirety. But it goes beyond just being a big fan of the Muppets. I'm a big fan of Jim Henson. I own a lot of Fraggle Rock. Uh, I got an awesome ultimate visual history for Fraggle Rock for Christmas this year. I'm very, very, very fond of 
the first two live action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies, which were done by Jim Henson's Creature Studio. I've talked about them on my show before. I love the Muppets. I love this series. I, it, it, it greatly helped form my sense of humor and my sense of self when I was younger. If you have children, the Muppets are okay to show them. I know that I said that it's not a kid's show. It's not a kid's show. In the same vein that The Simpsons is not a kid's show. Or in the same vein that certain sitcoms are not kid's shows. But kids end up watching them anyway. The Muppets is perfectly safe to watch with your children because nothing is overt or crass when it comes to that. They've had, like, I, I could sit here and talk about the Muppets all day. I have loved the Muppets my entire life. Um, Muppets in Space, I remember vividly getting that one from the movie rental place. Getting home, turning it on, and when Gonzo is about to be thrown out of the studio, when the guy reveals that, yeah, we, we've known you were an alien this whole time, the guy he brings in to throw him out is Hollywood Hulk Hogan. This would be Hollywood Hulk Hogan in his WCW NWO days as a villain. And I'll never, I'll never forget, I laughed about it a lot. When he picks up Gonzo to throw him down the garbage chute to get him out of there, he's like, you can't do this. There's, there's a lot of kids that love you. And Hogan goes, haven't you heard? I'm a bad guy now. I can do what I want. You guys need to understand Hulk Hogan bailed out on two pay-per-views and three paydays from WCW to film this movie. The reason he did that was not to film this movie alone. It was because he knew full well he was going to be using angles that were, to him, not beneficial, regardless of what they were going to do for the company, and he didn't want to do it. Uh, Muppet Treasure Island is probably my favorite individual Muppet film because I... I've always been a fan of Treasure Island. Uh, funny enough, I've never seen Treasure Planet. I've been told I need to. And of course, Muppet Treasure Island has the incomparable Tim Curry as the lead villain. Like, you can't go wrong with Tim Curry as a villain there. If you've never seen The Muppets, I implore you to go find it and watch it. You know, it's it's not one of those films that needed a whole lot of CGI or editing or anything to make it look good. It just it's a good practical movie. And you know, you might really enjoy it. So but this was the Muppets. This was not a very long episode, simply because there just wasn't a whole lot difficult to talk about. And I could sit here and talk for the next 20, 30 minutes about my love of these characters. Gonzo, Animal. The band, oh my god, I just I could I could go on and on and on about them. Uh, but I'm not going to. This is not a Muppets podcast. This is a movie podcast, and I'm just I just chose this week to talk about one of my favorite films because again, I felt like covering two Tom Hardy movies in a row like that. I just did three Christian Bale movies. I need a little bit of breathing room, so I'm I'm going to be trying to stay away from movies like that for a little while. I hope you guys enjoyed this. Next week, I am going to be... I'm not 100% sure. Um, I've looked at a few of the movies that are on my shelves, and I've looked through a few of the movies that I have digitally to try and figure out, you know, which one do I think would be a good one for people to listen to? And, and I think I've figured it out. I think I have it. So if you tune in next week, you're going to hear me talking about An American Werewolf in London, which is one of the most culturally important films in cinema to come out of the 80s by far. It, 
it shaved a lot of things. And also, as someone who has loved the Wolfman my entire life, werewolf films have always been a little bit closer to me than many of the others. So I'm looking forward to talking about that one. I hope you guys have a great, great week. I hope you had a great Easter weekend. Um, if it's not something you celebrate, I just hope you had a fantastic weekend and a fantastic week. I love you guys all for listening to me. I hope you enjoyed yourself. This was The Muppets. See y'all next week. I am Kid Kong. I will see you at the movies.